Hello, I'm Mark Petruzzi, host of Selling the Cloud podcast. And I'm Ray Reich, your co-host of the show. We talk to a wide variety of cloud and SaaS industry thought leaders and revenue generation experts who share their unique insight into what is required to build and grow a great business in the cloud. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of Selling the Cloud. I'm Mark Petruzzi, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ray Wright. And today we are so fortunate to have Kathy Minter, Chief Revenue Officer at N3, at our guest. We have four main areas we'd like to cover. I'm going to go a little bit into R3 and the importance of the whole digital industry transformation and fintech today. Second one is we're going to talk about really building a customer-first organization and how Kathy has done that throughout her career. We're going to go into one of our segments of the book around resilience and the importance of resilience and the power of empathy in sales. It's a big area that Kathy has always been very successful in building and has some amazing points of view there that we'd like to go further with as well. So Kathy, I'll hand over to you to just share a little bit of your background and what brings you to this point of your life that you're now on Selling the Cloud. Ray and Mark, thank you for having me today. It's been a great week. We actually had our virtual sales kickoff, so this was a great way for me to kind of close out the week joining your podcast. But I have been in software, enterprise software sales, scarily for 20 plus years, started at AT AT&T and kind of worked for big companies early in my career. So Oracle, SAP, spent a bunch of years kind of learning the tricks of the trade and having some great leaders along the way. And then kind of midway through my career, I got introduced to my first startup emerging tech company. It was a cloud transformation company called Cordis. And it was in 2008 when the cloud was completely nascent. And I always remember having conversations with people and family members. I'd say something like you were working for cloud computing and you definitely would get some strange looks at that time about, you know, what are you talking about? But it kind of gave me the bug for emerging tech and I'm a little bit of a glutton for punishment because when in a sales perspective, when you're trying to convince and talk to customers, Customers about solving their problems with technology that's not yet mainstream. It's definitely a different thought process and a different sales process. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that later for what we're working on at R3 now. But I've been at four startups. Essentially, R3 is my fourth and best. I love it. I'm so happy to be here, but spent some time, seven years building up an analytics software company. We started with sort of geospatial, moved into IoT, and ended sort of the AI machine learning and had an acquisition to Nokia, went to Docker. So joined the containerization craze. And that was a really new experience for me with open source and how do you work with an open source platform and had an opportunity to move back to New York. And I'm from Northern New Jersey. Don't hold that against me, but back to New York City. We're in our beautiful offices now, actually. And to work for, at the time, 18 months ago, someone said blockchain and they said, boy, you're really, really a glutton going into the blockchain Uh, space. uh, uh. But we're actually a technology that helps with digital transformation, which helps transform markets and industries. And the fintech industry is booming and there's so much interesting things. And even just not that R3 is involved with Bitcoin, but just the concept around digital currency. And COVID has you know, both been difficult for R3, but has also accelerated our market. So that's what led me here. It's been super exciting and look forward to talking a little bit more about it during this session. 
Great. Well, thank you. So we'll start with our first question. In general, how did the pandemic impact R3, your organization, and what were some of the steps that you drove to be able to help that to be a lever for additional growth, not something that slowed you down? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, at R3, because coming into R3 18 months ago, the company was formed as a consortium of banks, and it was a more of a consulting company. It was a brilliant idea, but over time, what happened was they were really a think tank, kind of a bunch of ex-investment bankers that kind of parlayed off the Bitcoin fear of Bitcoin. So everyone, the banks are afraid of Bitcoin, and R3 came in and said, you know, we can help you learn and understand how how distributed ledgers and blockchain can impact your business. And along the way, they realized, boy, the banks are telling them, I'd never use Bitcoin, but if I were to have a distributed ledger, I would want it to be secure and I would want it to have privacy and I would want it to have enterprise scalability. And they realized, my gosh, we have specs for our product. And they decided in 2018 to build a software product called Corda. They realized at that point they had no enterprise sales capability within the organization. They had a lot of amazing line of business finance expertise. So they started bringing in a number of people on the technical side. And as the company ramped up, they realized we don't have an organization that has a mature enterprise software SaaS selling capability. That's when I joined. So I've been in this transformation to take certain people here that have never sold software and obviously find the right fit. I've had to do a lot of change out of the leadership organization, bring new talent in, kind of like do a lot. So we're sort of midstream and the pandemic hit. And so we really had a paralysis happen for us that, you know, tough conversations you have to have with your team, you couldn't do in the middle of this situation that stalled things. Sales, we're in a net new customer acquisition mode. So we were signing new clients that was kind of slowing down and, and sales cycles were getting long. So I think we were impacted even greater in 2020 than let's say an established SaaS business that you're, you know, going to renew your customers and you've got some of those established relationships. So that was kind of the negative. But on the positive, I did a couple of things. One, it helped our organization go digital first. So the marketing organization, we did a virtual conference, our entire MarTech stack, we were able to quickly get funding to drive that all to a digital first, which wasn't there before. We also upgraded eight new systems. I put a new sales compensation system in. I put Clarion. You know, I was able to upgrade all of our systems, implemented QBR processes, just the basics, right? The bread and butter. But but we also saw the market shift dramatically. So no one wants to touch, let's say, cash anymore, right? After COVID, who wants to carry coins in their pocket or dollar bills? So the whole digital fintech crave, you know, has only accelerated and that's really positioned R3 well. So that was a plus. And it also forced a transformation internally. And this is what I was going to talk about later from a product-driven company, which was these guys came in and built a platform that they thought the banking sector needed to driving the solutions, the top-down go-to-market solution selling. And I feel like it could have taken me a lot longer to implement those changes and the COVID lockdown, it lit a fire under our product team to do that faster. So it was positive and negatives. So Kathy, wait a minute. A company that was transforming from being a consulting company to a product company. We are in a pandemic we are trying to sell an evangelistic new technology architecture, blockchain and distributed ledgers, and your sales cycles are elongating. How did you keep your sales organization motivated and inspired over the last six to nine months? 
Yeah, I mean, you have to celebrate the small wins, right? You know, what are we trying to accomplish, right? And it was a lot of foundational building. And it was also, we created a lot of new concepts. But the company did not have a professional services organization prior to me coming in. And we built up a PS organization from scratch, which grew at 190% last year. So we were landing, we were helping landing before the expanding. We also created a development license. So we have an open source product that was not being monetized. So we created a way to monetize an early stage development license wrapped with quick starts and PS and get in. And we landed like 60 net new deals and they were small, but we got people to try and buy. And that is setting us up well for this year to expand. But we were scrappy and we're like, listen, we just have to get, I mean, a 30K deal, we'll take it. You know, a 75 deal, get the conversations going and getting into, I mean, it's not the executive levels and all the alignment we want, but it did start to get our foot in the door to have conversations around the benefits of the solutions. It was tough, but I think we celebrated our wins and we celebrated what we did accomplish. And there was a heck of a lot of organizational changes that happened as well, which some of them weren't so great at the end of the year, you know, in terms of me having to transform some of the leadership team. So Kathy, how did you drive the day-to-day motivation of the team, you know, doing this on Zoom and on other platforms. And especially, you know, I got myself real Zoomed up for Zoom for the first five or six months. And I was feeling really comfortable doing 10 or 12 of them a day. I've noticed the last couple months that I don't want to do 12 Zooms every single day for the rest of my life either. So how did you keep that momentum going with your sales team? Yeah, I think this is a problem for the entire world right now, from my kids, teachers, just Zoom fatigue. I did encourage people to take as many phone calls as they could. So if you're talking to someone that you already know, turn off the video and walk around the block or take your dog for a walk or just get out of the house or something like that. But we tried to use a lot of the collaboration tools that are out there. So Slack, like everybody else and stand up meetings in the morning. We did the sort of all the things that all the companies were really trying to do. The interesting part was R3 as a culture coming from the institutional finance culture. This was a, you're at your desk in the morning culture, right? And this was a huge change for a lot of the executives here to actually be able to work at home. And this was something that I wanted to be able to drive was a virtual selling environment because it's a software company and that's how you work. And that's how you recruit people. You know, if you imagine you have to be sitting at your desk all day, meanwhile, you should be out with customers, but this was actually helpful because it forced sort of a test of, you know, are people going to be paying attention, working all day, believe it or not, because the banks are still kind of that you need to show up and be at your desk all day. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to lie. It was tough to keep different pockets of people motivated and had the ups and downs. And, you know, I couldn't run the organization how I would run it normally because there was just a higher degree of sensitivity to how people were doing from their mental and just emotional state. Yeah, no doubt. So what are the most important aspects of transforming a sales organization from a product technology focused business, getting really comfortable selling that side to really making it customer driven? 
Yeah. And I'm sure you've all had this at some point in your careers, but I think getting the entire organization and the executive leadership team all on the same page with that, this is not something that a sales organization can say we're customer first. This has to be a company decision and it needs to be driven from the top as well as a cultural shift coming from you know the organization where the engineering team built the product and it's a really great product. You know, let's put everything at open source, kind of a mentality right? But maybe the customers don't want that. And we need to listen to them and we need to make them happy. And we need to understand what it is that will solve their business problems and provide us return investment. And if we do that, we'll be successful as a company. And that's just basically been saying that stands the test of time, but it is a transformation. I thought we were getting there. I remember at one meeting, we came into an Exco meeting and we were talking about this. And one of the technical leaders goes, yeah, but we're a product driven company. So I said, well, this is time out. I'm not going to be successful until we all decide. I go for a product-driven company, fine. But somebody tell me which one we are, because that's really important. So I think we've done a really successful job of having everyone understand that. And now that's really something that comes through in our entire sort of product life cycle and how we're building our product today. Kathy, let's double click on customer first or customer driven. What best practices can you share with our listening audience to have your sales organization really be the voice of the market and voice of the customer and get that feedback quickly into your product management and product development groups? Yes. So the preparation that goes in before a sales call, it came from some of the interns, but we've got this little group and they're amazing, but we always do research on that customer. And we have sort of a format for doing that to walk into that discovery, to make sure we're asking that was those right questions and showing the customer that we number one care and we value their time. And we've spent a lot of time understanding, we think observations or sort of the current state as we see it today, right? As you go into that first meeting. And then, you know, we quickly try to capture sort of the M MVP analysis because we sell a platform. So we don't sell an application. We sell a platform that has applications that are built on top of it. So it's kind of that templated solution use case. We're very use case driven and the requirements in the use cases drive a lot of the product functionality. So we make sure that between our pre-sales team and professional services that both technically and from business drivers, we're very quickly having a loop with product management. And one thing we did this year, because there was a little bit of the spaghetti on the wall when I got there. So I don't know if anyone remembers from the 70s, but the Ginzu knife, which does everything under the sun, like slices, dices, this, that. So our platform was a little bit of like, it can do everything. But the point is, we said, listen, our platform is purpose-built and architected really well to solve, let's say, these six problems, data reconciliation, payments, the confidential computing, that we've got certain optimal use cases that we're now sort of teller making our GTMs to go after so that we're not chasing problems that we can't solve. You know, and then you're wasting sales cycles and you go back to product and they go, this thing won't work the way you want it. And then you go, well, you have to build it. And then that causes the whole cycle all over again. So we've investigated the use cases that have the biggest total addressable market that the platform can work optimally in, that it's architect detected and that we know if we land there, it's likely that the customer is going to get value from that use case. And so that is really what we're doing today. And we're trying to feed that loop into product management, product squads, and ultimately to engineering. 
So Kathy, I know you know this already, but this is why all the little things matter in being a CRO as well. So that ability to drive to more of a customer-driven approach really only starts if the organization respects you as a sales organization and as a CRO as well. And that's why all the little things matter because if you did not have the respect of the organization and you brought in what could be great data from the customer, it's not going to go anywhere and it's not going to gravitate. So it really ties back to so many of the small things that you need to do in building the team, picking the right individuals for the team, and then just managing that CRO role within an organization. So let's go a little bit to 2020 versus 2021. Tell us a little bit about the operational differences, the sales process differences that you're now driving as we go into a new year with the pandemic still raging on, unfortunately, but glimmers of hope in the distance. Yeah, it's good timing because we were thinking about a theme for our sales kickoff this year. And last year was actually the first ever sales kickoff the company ever had. And some of them were like, what's a sales kickoff? So we had the sales kickoff and it was scale up. And we put, here's a methodology for selling. Here's the stages in Salesforce, what they mean. I mean, this was where we were really at, okay, believe it or not. And, you know, the scaling up process, as I said, we kind of like built the foundation. 2021 is all about our theme was game on. And we said, we've adjusted to the new normal, the pandemic has helped us. We're going to capitalize on the ways that it has helped us. The foundation is set. So here is the playbook. Here is the research. We've combined marketing and sales. We've got kind of an end-to-end process to, as I described, throw more strikes at the sales force. So when you have those at-bats, we built up an SDR organization, an ISR organization, but you're going to get those at-bats. And when you're prospecting, you know that the information and the business-oriented use cases that you can sell are going to land with the right personas that we've identified. So we're really giving a focus prescriptive, process-oriented sales approach. And that was what the last four days was about. Like, here's the message you take to this person and that person. And it's not rocket science. I mean, it's what we've all been doing. It's just the basics, blocking and tackling. But to kind of roll this out to a different group of people, some of which were brought in from the outside, which this is like second nature, others that we've had to up-level because with their specific skills in capital markets or insurance, for example, that are really valuable. So 2021 is kind of no excuses. Let's execute. We are still selling a technology that is really new. But, you know, last year we closed NASDAQ and Bank of America, Wells Fargo. I mean, some significant customers, there's really no excuse why you can't go have those conversations with those types of organizations and feel as though they can be relevant. So it was a little bit of give everybody confidence, give them the tools, give them the playbook. Here's the expectations for your activity, your reporting. Like, this is what we need from you. And if you do all of these things, we're here to help you. Executives, everyone, we win together, lose together. Let's go. So that's the difference. It's just no more waiting around 2020. That's in the past. We're really just forward looking. Kathy, you said some music to my ears, an integrated marketing and sales organization. One of my beliefs in 2021 is it's the opportunity for chief revenue officers to really be the driving force behind marketing, sales, and customer success and services alignment and integration. Tell me what you're doing to really drive that integration at R3. 
Yeah, it's very exciting because I lobbied. Interesting enough, the marketing organization rolled up through the product team and was totally disconnected. Not that it wasn't good people in the organization, but just through the silo itself, it created a problem. So I lobbied last year. I said, listen, let's take on marketing. Let's combine the organizations together. It would be easier, less work for me to have marketing than not to have it, right? Just in terms of the conversation. So we did at the end of the year and already in the fourth quarter, it's been an amazing it's almost like if you put two people in the room together, how they communicate just by combining the organizations and putting our chief marketing or our head of marketing on my sales leadership team so that she's hears everything that's going on week to week. Number one has just helped the communications. She said for the first time, she feels like she has a voice on the business side, right? That she was being pulled in the product direction, right? The product feature. And I would be like, we can't sell blockchain doesn't do anything like blockchain itself does absolutely nothing, right? It's just associated in a network and it has to have applications on it and everything else. So organizationally, that was one thing on the integration We've evaluated an end-to-end MarTech stack just from the system side, and the SDR group is now completely aligned with the marketing group. So how we're doing our MQLs and handoffs and sales process to the sales accepted lead, which is the key. We've just merged those whole processes together. So they're like living with each other day in, day out. And we've brought in some external help. So we've brought in a branding agency. We've brought in a lead agency because I want to know what is going on with this data because the marketing organization, let's say, made all of their metrics last year and the salespeople didn't. So there was like a disconnect between the performance and marketing versus their impact on sales. But it all has to be completely closed loop between the moment there's any kind of digital touch point to our customers, to the deal that gets closed and then customer success and post-sale. I'm going to follow up to that. And I usually don't ask a second question, but did you also integrate the marketing operations and sales ops into a RevOps function or is it still independent? We did. We have a RevOps. Yep. We have actually my sales op person's getting promoted to head of revenue operations. And also the partner program is falling into that as well. The partner operations, because we're doing a new marketplace. So we got rid of our old marketplace, which was doing nothing for us. And creating a partner connect portal and we built a customer hub too. So you buy something from R3, you get an email from someone and it would contain a link to a wiki page with like a file to download Corda, like our software. And it was like the most unimpressive customer experience. And they didn't know, right? You're like, hey, just download the software. Now we've created a customer hub. So you get your portal, you go in, you know, all of the documentation is there. We can track. Now we know who's coming in, what they're doing, what they're downloading. And it's a really great experience where they can now log their support tickets. They can get their documentation and we can start to develop a relationship with them post-sale through this customer hub. So that's been really good. So it's been super fun because the opportunity was like to architect and build this organization up. It's sort of like the house built the foundation. Now we're sort of decorating, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of putting furniture in, but really amazing, smart people. And just like you said, Mark, the little things have made a huge difference. Just the little tiny details sometimes make a huge impact. 
Excellent. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. Kathy, I remember you telling me a story about when you were younger playing Little League Baseball and playing with the boys. And now we have amazing women like Sarah Fuller, you know, the kicker in Vanderbilt. I'm right. playing college football, doing everything. And love your perspective on women in sales. And now that we all have the latitude, there's nothing holding any of us back from doing this. How do we really leverage the power of women in sales? Yeah, it was funny because I remember some years I literally was like the only woman in the room. When I got to SAP and I was promoted into that line of business role, leadership role, that was when I really started to notice the division because there was a lot of women, really successful reps and AEs, but it was just like that next line up. And listen, playing sports when I was little with the boys definitely helped prepare me for never feeling out of place or just being able to kind of know. The trick is don't try to be one of the guys, just be yourself. And I think the key for women is just let your personality and femininity come through, I think, as you're leading and managing. And this became even more prevalent for me as I became a mom. And my team always laughs at me because I treat them sometimes like a mom, right? You're nurturing, but tough, right? Like, hey, but you know, I have a boss who's like the hard driving guy, but that's not my style. So advice I give to women who are coming up the line is be true to yourself and your personality and take that with you and try to hone that in terms of their leadership capability. But the best women leaders I've seen are just so much themselves and they relish like their uniqueness and whatever that might be. They don't try to manage like a guy, you know what I mean? So some of the early people that paved the way for me at Oracle, I think they suffered from trying to have to be tougher, you know? And I think the new sales leaders that are women might have just a little different style. Yeah, and that ties back to the book, even with authenticity, right? You still have to be yourself. And if yourself, whether you are female or male, is to be nurturing, then you should be a nurturing CRO. And I think that really allows for you to have so much more energy in the day. None of that is getting taken away because you're trying to act like what you think the organization or your colleagues or your bosses need or want you to be. Yeah, exactly. I feel that way. And it's been a blessing and something I wasn't always that easy. So I think that's something I've definitely learned with age. <laughs> we all do. So Kathy, we talk about you being your authentic self. And that's wonderful that you experienced that being your authentic self actually allowed you to get ahead because so many people think they have to play a role and put on that strong sales leader face. But I know one of the things Mark and I talked about was empathy because a lot of salespeople, right, they're very driven by their quota. They might be financially driven. Some are truly, they want to help their customer. How do you really help a sales organization show empathy if that's not their natural innate skill set or orientation? Yeah. Listen, I think there's different things that make salespeople successful. Maybe there's different forms, but being able to understand what your customer is thinking or what is really important. Like, let me put myself literally in your shoes. If you're super empathetic, you actually can feel like an out-of-body experience where you go in and you're you're almost like, I'm sitting at the other side of the table. I'm looking at this person and she's talking to me and what do you think I'm thinking? Truly, if you're a customer-driven company, then it helps you to meet their needs and solve a problem. And if you can meet their needs and solve a problem, you're likely on a better path to get a sale and form a relationship, which then is going to be very important for also building a champion or any kind of relationship with a customer. So 
as an organization, just empathy as an organization is how can we put others' needs ahead and understand, you know, what their needs are. And that's what selling is, is solving a problem. The joke I made in the book, like, see, is a cell, aspirin, and vitamins. Of course, who takes aspirin anymore? But if you're solving a problem or a pain point and you understand what that pain point is and you alleviate that pain point for that customer and show them a win, we all know that's, you know, much faster path than trying to sell them, you know, something new. Let me follow up on that because Reid Hoffman, co-founder of LinkedIn on his Masters of Scale podcast says, you want to be a painkiller, you're solving a real pain. Right. It's a vitamin, right? It's going to help you not suffer down the road. What if your salesperson goes into a company, talks about your platform and realizes at this point in time, it's really more of a vitamin for the future versus fixing today. Do you tell them to walk away or what do you tell them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's focused. So you want the at-bats that are going to win. So I'd say let's establish a relationship with the future and build a big enough pipeline that you're not dependent on that one meeting. Right. So like you start to build, okay, great. I'm going to call that guy in six months, you know, or get an introduction to someone in the organization that might have a pain point. You could say, Hey, you could have asked these follow-up questions, or maybe there was a pain point in a different area and that becomes the nuance, but certainly ramming the same thing down won't work. And I would encourage them not to do that just because unless it's the iPhone 12 that everybody just wants, right? A lot of enterprise B2B software is not. Some is, but this certainly isn't. So I would just encourage them to be careful with that. Yeah. Blockchain platforms, not a Zoom video tool right now. Not really that easy to wrap your head around. And Kathy, I'd go back to your point too, though. There's nothing wrong with selling really good vitamins to a company. You know, we always look at, yes, find the pain point. But the pain point is, or can be, how do we make sure we don't get sick in the future? And vitamins work as well. So I think it kind of works either way. Tying back to empathy, I've always had my own personal view on that. And I agree. It's exactly that. Pick yourself up and you take a second and you say, what are they thinking? What is my prospect thinking at this point? And what I usually tied a lot to is, well, one of the things that I can do as their sales rep is help them with their career. And not a lot of salespeople think of that, but if I can help them put together a great project, select a really good product. I've done work in CRM in my career. I've done work in HCM, human capital management. And especially in HCM, it was very clear. There were people that wanted to make a decision to buy PeopleSoft because they knew they were going to be a consultant three years from now after they implement it and have all that work. And the same thing happens today with Workday and Ultimate Software. And just really, you know, going through that side, I think is really helpful and looking at it and saying, how do I make sure they know that and they're aware? And that's part of the selling process. The other thing too, is sometimes just the ability to go and say, you know, this is an opportunity where I can bring a whole new different technology to an individual that knowing what I know about business is going to be helpful for their career as well. Just bringing up those discussions, bring you to a whole nother level in the relationship. And it gives you, frankly, just another selling point that they are now thinking of and saying, wow, you know, this could be interesting for me personally. I've really enjoyed that throughout my career. That is such a great point. Absolutely. 
Yeah, no, and thank you. And it serves your clients, which is what I've always wanted to do in, in my career in sales. But it serves you too as a sales rep because it is another way to just be aware of why people buy. And that is one reason that people buy. There are times I would watch a PeopleSoft decision versus an Oracle decision. And you and me both having you know deep relationships with Oracle and being former employees, there are times that people, no matter what I would try to be selling at Oracle, there were people that just like, I want to be part of the cult of PeopleSoft. I want to be part of the cult of Workday. And, you know, whether you use that to build it up, if you're an employee of Workday or Ultimate, or you use it to qualify out when you know you're just never going to get that person to buy an Oracle product or an SAP product, it's very helpful to your career. So final question, let's talk a little bit about resilience, resiliency. What does it mean for you to find reps? How can you find reps that are going to be resilient? And how can you leverage the interview process? And, you know, we won't go deep into this at this point, but I have a very deep connection to cognitive and behavioral assessment tools and leverage like that as well to really know who is going to be resilient when times get tough. And we all know times get tough as a sales rep and even in the good years. So how do you identify resiliency? And I guess, can you train it? Can you build that up as well? Yeah, I love the assessments too, because I think they stopped using, you know, companies kind of got away from that, but I remember having to take them myself. But I think a couple questions I ask usually, and some of it can be a personal challenge that they faced. Others is, you know, tell me your top five deals that you lost, right? Just right off the bat. Because I know for anyone, I learn more from the ones that I just got. I was actually telling a story about one today, a spectacular, you know, loss, but you know, you do learn the most. And if the people have the details, around why they lost certain deals during their sales career, you know that that is a sign of resiliency because you are learning from those like an athlete, right? You continue to just train and practice and you might lose that particular game, but you're going to push yourself to the next level and the next level and the next level. And if you are okay losing deals and learning, you're fairly resilient in terms of not getting discouraged and never giving up and recognizing that in an enterprise B2B complex sales process, you know, how many times those deals go south and then you've got to get them back on track. And someone was just making a joke, like, you know, the step up and the step back, it's not moving backwards. It's the cha-cha, you know, like you're going back and forth or something like it's a dance. So, so I think we all know that. And, and just having also potentially being able to articulate personal stories in your life of where you might've had a challenge, but that you've used that challenge to gain strength, to gain resolve and motivation to move forward. You know, you said something earlier in the podcast, and it's a little bit tangential from grit, but the land and expand model, a classically trained enterprise sales professional is used to an enterprise deal dying many times before they close that seven right. figure above deal. But now you're maybe taking traditionally trained enterprise salespeople say, go get that 40, 50, 60 K deal, close it now. And then we'll get more revenue six, 12 months down the road. Is that a real transformation for enterprise salespeople to learn that? Well, I think, yes, you have to reset your expectations into how many transactions build up to your quota, right? And this is a startup. We're trying to go for the larger, you know, seven figures, but the reality is there's going to be a blend. I think that the land and expand model still really works well in a traditional model as well, right? Because along the way, you're building up kind of your enterprise strategy. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question 
Well, I was just wondering, but it is a new market. You're trying to get those lighthouse reference accounts. So the enterprise rep knows that she's got the opportunity to upsell that over the next 12, 24 months to a seven-figure deal. And how long do they keep the account in your model? Yeah, for now, we're vetting them keep it until the next year. So we don't have a full customer success organization. But, you know, I think there's more scrutiny as well just overall in enterprise software sales with SaaS, right? So that we all know the deal sizes have been shrinking. The gigantic perpetual services enterprise five-year licenses are still out there a little bit, but you know, definitely not in the SaaS world. The deals are shrinking and I think people need to be okay with proof of technology. You know, a lot of pilots, a lot of times you have to go in, especially with a startup, prove it out. You know, I don't like to call it a proof of technology. I like to call it a phase zero implementation. So you kind of set the stage for what this could look like, what the end game is, and then say, you know what, we'll carve out that phase zero for a demonstrable use case. And at the end of that phase zero, if we meet these success criteria, we're going to move on. A lot of software startup companies and technology suffer from the two sales cycle syndrome where they come in and they sell the first proof of technology or proof of concept to an innovation team or a tech team. They love it. They get to the end of it and guess what? There's no business buyer lined up. And then the second sales cycle starts and sometimes that doesn't go anywhere. So before you do the first sales cycle, line the second one up. That's great advice. So Kathy, I'm going to take us back to your point on that interview question of going in there and saying, tell me about a deal that you lost. I always take it a step further and say, tell me about a deal that you lost, that you lost because of a mistake you made in the selling cycle. Knowing that at that point, first off, and you know, I'm sure you even have gotten this a little bit of, oh, I can't remember a deal I lost. Or I certainly with my answer or my question, the answer could be, well, I don't really remember a deal I lost because of mistake, but I don't leave that just like any good salesperson. I make sure, you know, I get out of that what I was looking for in the first place. And I will one way or another. Well, Kathy, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll actually hand it over to Ray to kind of close us off here. But thank you again. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's been super fun. Yeah, Kathy, thank you so much. And to our listeners, we really would appreciate if you found value from the podcast today, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And please go ahead and rate and comment on the podcast so we can make it more valuable for listeners like you. Thank you very much for being a guest on Selling the Cloud, Kathy. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Mark.